0: And go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. And again, we're thankful to be with you this morning. I'm thankful to be back with these guys. Uh, we actually left them for two weeks, uh, for one week to go to Baptist International Missions Incorporated Candidate School. And we're approved there as missionaries through that missions agency. And I'll talk a little bit more about the, our missions future here in just a moment. And then we were in Lancaster for the week for a spiritual leadership conference. And so we've been gone for two weeks. And I miss those songs. You know, I heard them for a month solid and got really sick and tired of them. And uh, no, I'm kidding, I didn't. I enjoy hearing these guys sing it. And you might think hearing the same songs over and over again that you'd get tired of it, but I really don't. And I really enjoy hearing them sing, and they they sing with a heart for the Lord, and I'm thankful for that. And so it's good to be back with them, and it's good to be back with you. I don't know if. How many of you remember me, but I was on America's Most Wanted recent No, I'm kidding. That's, that was another church. Uh, this church, I was here, actually, yeah. No, three years ago, I was here with a tour group. I think it was a ladies' tour. I think it was a spring tour group, if I'm remembering right. I want to say it was just before it snowed, and it was March. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Um... Snow in March? Are you kidding? In Lancaster, it's 90 degrees in March, so uh, it kind of caught us off guard, but we had a good time here, and I always enjoy coming back. Your pastor's been a friend to me, and I appreciate that, and I'm glad to be back here with you, and I love the state of Ohio, too. Um, I've traveled a lot across the state to a lot of different churches. They're always friendly, and I always enjoy being in the state, so it's good to be with you this morning. Before we read the passage, Pastor asked me to just mention briefly what the Lord's doing in our hearts with regards to missions, and so I'll do that here uh, just for a moment. I have, ever since I was 12 years old, felt called to preach and called specifically to missions. And I was never sure how that would manifest itself. I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go. For the longest time, I thought Canada. And that's primarily rooted in the fact that my family moved to Canada when I was 15 to start a church. And I loved it up there. I had a great time and enjoyed living there for about three years before I went to college. Um, But I just wasn't sure where we would end up in the future. And when I graduated from West Coast, they offered me the opportunity to stick on on staff there. And I thought I always wanted to go somewhere and get some practical experience in ministry. And I thought, well, where better to do that than uh, Lancaster Baptist Church and West Coast Baptist College? And I thought, this is a great opportunity. So I jumped on it. and, And we were there, like I said, for four years, but always in the back of our minds. And our pastor knew this, and the men on the faculty there, the administration knew that we were always looking to ultimately head off and, and to start a church somewhere. That was our our desire and our dream, but I still didn't know where. And you can ask my wife. We drove ourselves crazy for about three years just trying to figure out where to go. And I thought about everywhere. I thought about Canada, England, the Philippines, Chile. These are all legitimate, like serious considerations that I took time to research. And um, and there's a story behind each one. How I came to that. I even thought about going to Washington State for a little bit. Uh, and finally, about uh, let's see, about uh, 15 months ago now. Our pastor came uh, to the church one night and he mentioned an opportunity that he had just seen in Christchurch, New Zealand. And he had been coming back from a leadership conference that he had hosted in Asia in the city of Singapore. And on the way back, there was a member of our college advisory board, a Christian businessman who was from Australia but was living in New Zealand. And he said, we'd like for you to come through and just preach for our church. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And on the way through, he found out that this church was just about to lose its pastor. And so he came back to the United States, and he said, hey, pray for this little church. He said this on a Sunday night at Lancaster. They are going to need a pastor really soon. And, and my interest was peaked. and I don't know why. I always felt like church planting would be what I did, but my interest was piqued. And then about three seconds later, the Holy Spirit got involved through my wife's elbow. Um, <laughs> she, she nudged me, and she said, that sounds so neat, so interesting. And I had already thought that, and I thought, yeah, you know, and she's on, she's on board, too. So, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing, and I thought, you know, whatever, maybe. And after church, I, I went to shake our pastor's hand, and I just did that every Sunday night. It's just what I do. and I didn't say anything to him about New Zealand, but as I was walking away, he called me back, and he said, you ought to really pray about this opportunity in New Zealand. So now I had three things coming at me. I had thought about it. My wife was interested, and now, my pastor had mentioned it to me without me mentioning it to him first. And so began to pray about it for several months and wasn't sure exactly how the Lord was leading. But finally, in November of last year, I had the opportunity to fly over and to preach for this little congregation in Christchurch. And here's what I came to discover about them. They're, they're kind of a, a miracle church. Uh, there was an earthquake in New Zealand back in 2012. You may remember hearing about that. 2011, 2012. It was a magnitude 6.7, but Christchurch is built on largely marshland, and it actually destroyed about 130,000 structures in the city. And so, the, the government of New Zealand contracted out to workers from foreign countries, especially Philippines and Brazil, to come and help with the rebuild. So, there was an independent Baptist guy who was living in, who, or in Australia, who was a Brazilian, who decided to come down and start a Bible study with some of these immigrants. And they started with about five or seven, and over the course of three or four months, it grew to 70. Which would, by the way, make it the largest independent Baptist church in the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, But they weren't a church. They were just a Bible study. So they said, let's start having church. So they called themselves Lighthouse Baptist Church. They rented a Presbyterian church building for Sunday evening and met on Sunday evening. And voila, there they go. And obviously when you look at the book of Acts, it's not exactly the way you'd like to see a church started. But that was what happened. And so they were meeting for two or three years. And about 15 months ago, right when my pastor went through, that man who had started all that pulled out. He left uh and so now for the past 15 to 18 months they have not had a pastor um and so when i went over in november i thought man this is this is so appealing uh in the right way the holy spirit was obviously leading and and drawing us there but i didn't know exactly how to handle this you know am i supposed to organize this little body of believers what's what's the idea here and i got back and i sat down with my pastor i said listen pastor i really feel like the lord is calling us to christ church but i just don't know how to go about this and he said You ought to see how interested they would be if you just start a brand new church, which is what I felt like the Lord had on my heart all these years anyway, and see what they say. And so uh, we went back in March, and I went to that book of Acts, and I said, folks, here's how we see churches starting in Acts. And I went to Acts 11. And uh, if you're familiar with Acts 11, it's how God scattered the church a little bit through some persecution out of Jerusalem. And some of them went to Antioch, and they started winning a bunch of people to the Lord, but they didn't have a church. It was just a bunch of people getting saved. And the church in Jerusalem heard about it and sent Barnabas. And Barnabas went and started that church in Antioch. And I said, this is how we see churches starting all throughout the New Testament. Uh, an established church sends a man to another city to start a church. And I said, you know, the analogy is interesting because if you were to compare it to what we've got here, I said, Jerusalem is Lancaster, which it's not really. But, you know, Jerusalem is Lancaster and Christchurch is Antioch and I'm Barnabas. And I said, uh, I feel like the Lord's calling us here. And there's no doubt that you folks have been instrumental in that calling. And I said, but we would like to start a brand new church because you don't have a pastor, they don't have a building, a lot of things that are missing. And we'd like to invite you to join us in that. And frankly, I didn't know what the response would be. I thought it might be positive, but I wasn't sure. And I thought, you know, either way, the Lord has called us here. But I just knew that this group was was involved in that. God had used them to bring us there. And uh, their response was overwhelmingly positive. And they said, we'd love to join you in that. And so they're waiting for us to get there. They're just sort of holding the fort and keeping things rolling forward. And so pray for us that we'd have a quick deputation. We're starting in August, and I'd like to be there in under a year if possible. And so pray for us in that regard. Pray for those folks. Uh, Christchurch is a very liberal city. The whole uh, country of New Zealand is a very liberal country. Uh, one of the first countries to uh, legalize gay marriage. One of the first countries to outlaw child spanking. You know, Just things like that that, uh, that you might expect from that type of a, of a political environment. Um, And what used to be um, really a center of of great faith, as Pastor was mentioning this morning, Uh, now the largest religion, 42.6%, is no religion. And so um, the country's gone downhill very quickly, and they need the gospel. And so pray for us as we get ready to head over there. It's the the largest city you've never heard of, 375,000 people or so, and it's only a six-hour flight from Antarctica. It's the, at the end of the world, and uh, we're excited about what the Lord's... It's winter down there, too, right now, which is going to be weird. Christmas is a summertime holiday for them. They go to the beach on Christmas, and uh, then they, um, they bundle up in July. And so, I don't know, we'll have to celebrate Christmas in July or something just so it feels right. But uh, anyway, we're, we're excited about what's going to be going on down there, and we appreciate your prayers for us. First Corinthians, chapter number 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. And then we'll jump right into the message this morning. And looking forward to seeing what God's word has for us this morning. First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 8. The Bible says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. I don't want you to take close heed to this particular phrase, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I'd like to speak to you this morning for just a few moments about the final inspection. The final inspection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. May the seed of your word take root in our hearts this morning. And may you help us to learn better how to serve you today. I pray that if there's one in here this morning that does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would, Lord, recognize their need for salvation, that you'd work in their hearts today. Bless now as we spend these few moments in our service around your word. And we'll thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, the word inspection doesn't carry a a positive connotation with it. When I think of inspection, every experience I've ever had that has to do with an inspection (laughs) has been somewhat negative. I think back to my first car that I bought in college. It was a 1993 Ford Escort station wagon. It was green, manual transmission. It was the perfect uh, college student car, you know, and it was awesome. I loved it. I called it the Green Goblin <laughs> uh, because it was just, it was, it was awesome. I loved driving that thing all over town. Got great gas mileage for a 1993 car and just just really did a good job. But I'll never forget when I bought it, the guy sold it to me for $750, and he said, you're going to need to get it smogged. And I thought, yeah, no problem, smog. Yeah, that's fine. I don't mind getting uh, the smog inspection done. And so I took it down to the local station, and they hooked it up, and in about 60 seconds later, they came in and said, we've already got a problem. And at that point, I began to have a strong dislike for smog inspections, and I don't know if it's just California law or what, but they always seem to find something wrong with your car. I also think of the dorm inspections, more specifically, the white glove inspections. When I was in college and these guys and Lydia, they know what I'm talking about. It It is not a pleasant time. You have to make sure you're walking closely with the Lord. or you get in the flesh really fast. And uh, the white glove inspection is just a deep clean. You know, you got to pull out the beds and make sure everything's pulled out and everything's vacuumed. The baseboards are clean. The air conditioning unit's cleaned out. You can't just hide stuff in the drawers and closets because they're going to look. And you can't just leave it in there. Everything's got to be put away. and It's got to be spotless. And it's just... It's just a lot of cleaning and it's not very fun. And if there's something wrong, they will find it and they will tell you uh, by way of demerits. And so it's just not a a fun experience, the white glove inspection. And those two things combined with other things have sort of given the, the word inspection a little bit of a negative connotation in my mind. You know, there's one inspection that the Bible teaches that everyone who knows Christ will be a part of one day. And it's this inspection that we found here in 1 Corinthians 3. It's the inspection of your life. The inspection of your life lived for Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Other passages have called it the Bema seat judgment. It's a time when every Christian will stand before Christ and will give an account for their life. Their life will come under inspection. Now, a couple of things about this. Number one, this is the inspection, the judgment that you want to be at. Okay? The Bible teaches that there are two judgments at the end of the age and... One of those is the judgment seat of Christ and one of those is called the great white throne judgment. That's the judgment the guys were actually singing about a few moments ago where God will call all of those to him who have not been saved. They've rejected him as their savior. He'll look for their name in the Lamb's book of life and it won't be there. And the Bible says in Revelation, at the end of the book, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So those who don't know Christ are at the great white throne judgment. And I'm thankful that I do know Christ as my Savior, that I've had that time in my life where I've accepted Him. And for those of us who have accepted Him, we're not getting entrance into heaven based off of our works. Uh, Our entrance into heaven is based solely off of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it's only through the blood that we have salvation. And we can be thankful for that. And yet, Christ still does want us to give an account for our works. The Bible tells us that faith without works is dead. That's not to say that that salvation is gained by works. It's to say that our faith should have some feet to it. It should be doing things. It should be active for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us this life to live for Him. And one day we'll stand before Him and we'll let Him know or He will show us how well we did in living our lives for Him. It's an inspection that we will all face. So the first thing is that it's a good thing to be at this inspection, but the second thing is it doesn't have to be a negative experience. Though the word inspection may carry a negative connotation, This can be an overwhelmingly positive moment for a Christian. When it comes to the smog inspection, if I take care of my car the way that I should, regular oil changes and making sure that I perform routine maintenance on it, usually that means that my car will pass the smog inspection. And if I do my due diligence in preparing for a white glove inspection, cleaning up nicely and making sure that everything's put away and doing what I need to do in order to pass, usually the white glove experience ends up being a a pleasant, a positive experience at the end. But in both situations, the outcome, whether or not it's positive or negative, is dependent upon how well I prepare. And you are preparing for the final inspection right now. You prepared for it a little bit yesterday. You'll prepare a little bit today. You'll prepare a little bit tomorrow and every single day until either you die or the rapture. We're preparing for the inspection. And we might say, well, I haven't done very well preparing so far. That's fine. Because there's still time to prepare now. The Bible gives us several, you could call them clues, if you will, several tips on how to prepare for this inspection. They're all found in this passage, and I'd like to look at those this morning as we spend some time in God's Word. Look at, uh, first of all, the fact that there is the requirement for this inspection. There's the requirement of a foundation. Look in verse number uh, verse number. 11, where it says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see here in a moment that the Bible likens our life to a building. It compares our life to a building. And one of the interesting things about a building is that every building requires a foundation. We just finished a few months ago the Walther Center out in Lancaster. And the Walther Center is our brand new gymnasium building. It also serves as an auditorium for the Spanish. And it's a it's a beautiful building. And you, you drive by and it's nice to look at and the inside is gorgeous. But there's one part of it that, that you never look at that had to be there before the rest of the building went up. And that was the foundation. In fact, because we live in California in the desert and the sands kind of shift and we have these fun little things called earthquakes every now and then, they had to dig down 16 feet below the surface of the, of, the, of the ground there and dig all that dirt up and then repack it down so it was nice and firm and put in concrete footers all throughout that dirt so that it had a solid foundation. Every building has to have a foundation. This building has a foundation. Your home has a foundation. The place where you work has a foundation. Every building requires a foundation and your life is no less different than that. Your life must have a foundation as well. And in verse number 11, it tells us that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is the foundation. And I say that this morning to say this, that if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then frankly, the rest of the message does not apply to you. Because right now, you're not destined for this inspection anyway. You're destined for the other inspection that I was talking about because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. We're all guilty before God, uh, guilty of breaking his laws. Even when we were born, we were born with the nature of sin. We were destined to become sinners. And yet the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died to pay that substitutionary death for us on the cross. So that if we accept that payment of salvation, if we accept him into our lives, He would forgive our sins. We would stand before Him justified, as the guys sang just a few moments ago. And we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that heaven will one day be our home. But Jesus Christ must be in your life before the rest of this message can apply to you. The Savior is the foundation. There's a requirement. The Bible says no other name is given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. And in this day of pluralism, it doesn't hurt to just reiterate it. There's no other way to get to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. I remember Oprah Winfrey infamously saying several years ago that there couldn't possibly be one way to heaven. Folks, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't really matter what Oprah thinks or the President of the United States thinks or the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world or whoever. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, well, when it comes time at the end of the service for a time of prayer and a time of decision making, you need to make that decision. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. The savior is the foundation. But then we see the structure on the foundation and we see it described in verse number 12. It says, now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and stubble. Now, we'll discuss more in detail what these gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and stubble might represent here in a moment. But suffice it to say, the gold, silver, and precious stones are obviously very valuable. The wood, hay, and stubble have very little value to them. And the the example is pretty clear. The works that we've done for Christ that matter, the things that, that, that count for Him for eternity, those are the gold, silver, and precious stones. And then the sin, the selfish works, the things that are done with impure motives, those are the wood, hay, and stubble. And the Bible says that these materials form the building that is your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And as Paul said there in verse number 10, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Now there's a trap that we fall into many times when we're thinking about the structure that we're building for Christ. And that is, and I say this and I'll explain in just a moment, we focus a lot on the outside and not so much on the inside. I think there's an example that would help us understand this better, and that's, that's of the Queen Mary, which is a boat that's anchored out in Long Beach. It's a, a, beautiful cruise ship, and Lydia, you've probably seen the Queen Mary, been down the Long Beach, and, and it's a beautiful cruise ship that was used from about 1901, 1902, up till 1959. Uses a, a luxury liner between New York and London. Also uses a troop transport during World War II. It's got a really fascinating history, and, when it came time to retire that boat, after 1,001 trips across the Atlantic Ocean, they sailed her around to Long Beach, and they began to do some restoration work. Now she's a hotel, a museum. You can spend time on the boat, and it's an, it's an enjoyable thing to experience. But they wanted to do some restoration work before opening it to the public. So they wanted to work on the Queen Mary's smokestacks, first of all. There are three smokestacks on the Queen Mary. They're 60 to 70 feet tall, and they're approximately 23 feet wide. They're huge. You can see them from a long distance away. So they put a crane around the, or the straps from the crane around these smokestacks and began to lift them off the boat. And when they did, they found that the stacks began to crumble in on themselves. And of course, they didn't want to damage the boat and they wanted to be careful to not uh, cause any problems. So they set it down and they began to investigate further. Here's what they found. Over, over the years, of course, there were blemishes along the way on those smokestacks. There'd be a ding here or a mark there, or maybe time sun would sort of wear away the paint. And so they'd give it a fresh coat of paint every now and then, keep it looking nice on the outside. Meanwhile, on the inside, the, the salt air, the smoke, the rain, all of the different elements that it had been subjected to had slowly begun to wear away the metal on the inside of those smokestacks. And after 50 years of service, they found that the only thing that remained of the Queen Mary's smokestacks were 23 coats of paint, no metal left on the inside. I think as Christians, sometimes we fall into a trap similar to that. As we live our lives and as we sometimes go through temptation or trials, the dings, the marks of life kind of hit us and we do a good job of painting over them. We make sure that everything's looking nice and shiny and we talk the right way. We dress the right way. We act the right way. We keep everything looking nice on the outside. But if we're not careful, what we're made of on the inside begins to wear away under the pressures of life. The motives for why we do what we do begin to become impure. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they were like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but inwardly were full of dead men's bones. You know, God is very interested with how we appear on the outside. He said, let your good works uh, shine before men that they may see your good works or let your life so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. He's interested in the right external appearance, but he's way more interested in what's going on on the inside. I think there's going to be a lot of Christians at the judgment seat who are going to have a gold, silver, precious stone facade, but a wood, hay, and stubble interior. Consider this morning the structure of your life. What is it made of? What does it look like? Wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. We see, secondly, in this passage this morning, the revealing of the fire. Because the judgment consists of this fire taking our structure, our building, our life and revealing what it's really made of. Verse number 13 says every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The revealing of the fire does two things. First of all, it destroys that which was fake. Verse 15 says if any man's work shall be burned he shall suffer loss. And fire is an interesting study in the Word of God because God many times likens himself or a characteristic of himself to fire. For instance, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 24, it says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Psalm 79 and verse number 5 says, How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall, thou, shall thy jealousy burn like fire? God likens his jealousy to fire. I think of also of Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 3, which likens God's wrath to a fire. And then Jeremiah 20 and verse number 9, where God says his word was like a fire. And then also Isaiah 33 and verse 13, which says God's holiness is like a fire. Many times God likens a characteristic of himself to fire. And though we don't know exactly what this fire will consist of, consider with me for a moment, since God will be doing the judging, that perhaps it's his jealousy that will be the, the revealing fire in our lives. And ask yourself this question. What about your life makes God jealous? Is there something that's taking first place in your life that's taking priority over the things of God? What about the fire of God's word? The Bible says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. What about our life doesn't line up with God's word? What about if it was the fire of God's wrath that was trying our life? What about the fire of God's holiness? What would that reveal in your life? We see that it destroys that which is fake, but it also delights those who are faithful. Because we see in verse number 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now, take a step back with me, folks. Just think about this for just a second. I I love receiving rewards. When I was a kid, I went to a junior camp, and I memorized more verses than anybody else, and I got a, a memorized Verse Ribbon Award. And it was awesome. It was a little blue ribbon. It was probably 50 cents, but it was awesome. I loved it. Loved that little reward. I remember when I was a teenager, I won a, a preaching award at our church and our youth group, and I got a, a trophy for winning the preaching award. I remember when I was in second grade, I had perfect attendance in my Christian school, primarily due to the fact that my dad was the principal. But anyway, I, was, I had perfect attendance, and I was the only one. And our pastor said, hey, he was the only one. Let's give him a little trophy. And a, a check for $25. And when you're seven years old, $25 might as well be a million dollars. I was rich. I remember going to Walmart because that's where we go. And I went to Walmart and I looked all around. And I said, man, anything that's $25 or less, I can buy it. Well, wow, that was great. I love that reward. Now as an adult, I'm a Starbucks gold member, which means after I spend like a thousand dollars, I get a free drink, right? And I love that. I know that they're ripping me off, but I love it. I love walking into Starbucks and saying, I have A reward, and they get to scan that barcode, and I can have whatever I want for free. I mean, aren't rewards fun? Don't you love getting little prizes now and then? But I think of all the rewards I may have won in my life, and I can't think of anything that could even compare remotely to receiving a reward from Jesus Christ, the God who created the universe. You know, we sing that song, How Great Thou Art, and sometimes we don't stop to think about how great He is. Next time you're out at night and you look up at the stars, or you hear a thunderstorm roll through, or you consider the vastness of the universe, and you think about that God wanting to be personally involved in your life. And He says, despite how insignificant you are, and we are insignificant, We were landing the other day in Louisville to come back out with the team and I was looking down and I was thinking about how small the cars were and then I was looking at the the little tiny dots of cars driving along and then I thought, I can't see any people from up here. They're just too small to see how insignificant we are in comparison to God. And yet he says, if you'll do what I want you to do with your life, you'll receive a reward. What an incredible thought that he loves us that much. That He would not only send His Son, but that He would reward us for a life lived for Him. That's why I say this morning, folks, that it doesn't have to be a negative experience. You can stand before Christ one day and you can, you can receive a reward from Him. And yes, we'll turn around and we'll cast those crowns right back at His feet in thankfulness for what He's done for us. But just to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. That drives me. It motivates me every day of my life to think that that's what I'm working towards, pleasing the one who died for me. You know, it reminds me of a a story I heard once of a a Middle Eastern king known as a, a Raja. And this Raja was a very good, a very powerful, a very generous king. In fact, the stories were told of how this king would go sometimes through a village and he would see a beggar, a cripple, someone on the side of the road like that who was less fortunate. He would, he would come to that person and he would give them, just out of the goodness of his heart, a huge bag of gold. And it was said there was enough gold to not only buy them food, but also to buy them clothes, to buy them housing. It was just an, an amazing thing. And he would do this many, many times. The stories ran wild of how kind and how generous that he really was. Well, there was a certain beggar in his kingdom in, in a certain village, and this beggar, had heard these stories and he often dreamed about maybe one day the raja coming to his town and he used to think about how amazing it would be if the raja would give him a bag of gold like he had done for so many others and one day he heard the news that the raja was indeed coming to visit well that got him very excited he He couldn't wait for the Raja to come to his town and he began to get details like where the parade route would be and what time of day it would happen and where he might be able to sit, where he'd be really visible so the Raja could see him. And and he investigated all of this and when the day of the parade came, he made sure that he was situated right where the Raja could see him. Now his situation was very simple. He had two bowls. One bowl, he would beg for coins and people would drop coins into the bowl throughout the day. And in the other bowl, he had some rice that he would eat throughout the day just to keep his strength up and to keep, uh, keep himself going. And at the end of the day, he would take the bowl of coins, he would go to the local market and usually have enough coins to refill the bowl of rice. That was just sort of his cycle every single day. Eat the rice, use the coins to buy more rice so that he could beg for more coins. And that was that was his life. So this particular day, he got set up, he put his bowl of coins here, his bowl of rice there. And... He waited for the parade to begin to start. Pretty soon, he saw the front edges. He heard the celebration, and he knew that the Raja was getting close. He saw people playing music, and he saw people dancing, and people began to gather around him as the parade began to get closer. And he became very excited at the prospect of finally seeing the Raja. And and then, as the Raja got closer, he became a little concerned. There was a lot of noise. There were people all around him, and he wasn't sure that the Raja would see or hear him. His fears became compounded all the more as the, the Raja came around the corner and it turns out that he was riding inside of a tent and the tent flaps, they were shut. There was no way that the Raja could see out and it was borne up on the shoulders of four men and they were slowly making their way along and the man looked and he saw and he, he realized the Raja can't see me and so he began to cry out at the top of his lungs to try to get the man's attention but it was to no avail. Too many people around him yelling and, and shouting and singing and having a good time and it just, it just seemed like all hope was lost. The tent was now directly in front of him. And He screamed for all he was worth, but just couldn't seem to get the rajah's attention. The tent was beginning now to make its way past. The man felt all hope evaporating. He didn't know what else to do. And then all of a sudden, right at the last moment, a hand flashed from inside the tent. And instantly, everything stopped. The singing, the dancing, the music, everything. And that hand pulled back the tent flap. And for the first time, the rajah made eye contact with that beggar. And the beggar's heart leapt. And he thought, this is, this is awesome. He's gonna help me. He's going to come. He's going to, he's going to give me the gold that I've heard all these stories about. I can't wait to, to maybe see this Raja do this for me. And the Raja stepped down out of the carriage and he, or out of the tent and he made his way over to where the man was sitting and he, he looked at the bowl of rice. He looked at the bowl of coins. He understood well enough what was going on. And he smiled very kindly and he said, what would you have the Raja do for you? Well, the question caught the man a little off guard. He's kinda, kind of tongue-tied, nervous in the moment. And he said, well, I, I've, I've, I've heard of, of how you've given money to people like me. And I was wondering, would you give me, give me some gold? Give me some money? Help me in my situation? And the Raja smiled very kindly again. But he did something very interesting that nobody was expecting. He, he stuck out his hand. And he said, give of your rice to the rajah. Well, the man didn't know what to say to that. And, and he, he sort of stuttered and stammered for a moment. He, I, I, I beg, beg your pardon? Please, give of your rice to the Raja. Well, the man didn't really know what to do. And so he looked around. People were staring at him. He, he picked up his bowl. He reached inside and he pulled out two grains of rice. He dropped them in the Raja's hand. The Raja smiled and he said, good, good. Please, give, give more of your rice to the Raja. Well, that sort of bothered the man. It set him off a little bit. Surely this Raja had rice. And even if he didn't, he had money to buy rice. And, and he began to say so. He said, I, I don't understand. Why would you ask me for my rice? Uh, surely you have rice already or you could go get some. Any of these men around you could buy you some. You don't need my rice. Why, why would you ask me for my rice? And the Raja was a little taken aback, but he, he persisted. He held his hand out and he said, please give of your rice to the Raja. Well, now the man was angry and he said, no, now why would I give you my rice? That doesn't make any sense. I'm the beggar. You're the man who's rich. Why? Why would you take my stuff? This doesn't make any sense. It's not fair. The Raja again was taken aback. The smile had disappeared from his face, but he persisted. Please give of your rice to the Raja. The man made a great show of reaching into his bowl and pulling out one single grain of rice and he waved it around for a second. He threw it in the Raja's hand. There, that's all you'll get from me, he said. I'm not going to give you any more of my rice. The stories I've all heard, they're not true. They've all said that you're generous, you're kind, you're loving, you're giving. And and yet here you are asking me for my rice. This is all that I have, don't you understand? Why would you ask me for my rice when you could have all that you wanted? The Raja persisted. Please, give more of your rice to the Raja. The man clutched the bowl close to his chest and said, no. That's all you'll get from me. And he turned his shoulder. The Raja looked down at those three grains of rice and realized it was all he was going to get. So he closed his hand and he motioned to a servant. The servant ran to the royal tent that the Raja had just come from, disappeared inside for a moment, and then just a couple of moments later came back out with an enormous bag of golden coins. He was sort of, sort of stumbling under the weight a little bit as he made his way to the Raja The beggar, his ears perked up and he heard the jingling of the coins and he realized what was going on and he turns and he looks his eyes grow wide and he thought maybe I've talked some sense into the man. Maybe he finally understands the error of what he was asking me and the servant brought the bag of gold coins he heaved it over into the arms of the Raja. The Raja slowly untied the neck of that sack. And he looked at those three grains of rice in his hand one more time before reaching into the bag and pulling out three golden coins. Put those coins in the bowl. Tied the sack. Handed it off to his servant and servant and Raja together. Made their way back to the tent. The parade resumed. And the Raja was gone. The beggar sat there for several moments stunned by what had just happened. And suddenly it dawned on him that if he had just given all the rice he would have gotten all of the gold now do you know what that rice represents in your life everything you say well doesn't that minimalize my life a little bit not at all it's all that we have our time our talents our treasure that's all that we've got and he has got so much more planned for us And ready for us when we meet him in heaven one day. And all he asks is that we would give him the rice. And sometimes we give him part of it. We give him a couple grains here, a couple grains there. And sometimes we get indignant when he asks us for more. And what we don't realize is that he's able to do so much more than what we could ever think. If we would just live our lives for him. Don't hold back today from God. He gave himself for you. And by the way, he didn't hold back from you. He gave everything. And as we live our lives, we can get a little stingy sometimes. Let's give our all to God, knowing that one day we can stand before him and hear him say, well done. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. Are you ready for the final inspection? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what this passage of Scripture teaches us today.